are the descendants of 40 million people who left other countries, other familiar scenes, to come here to the United States to build a new life. I think it is not a burden, but a privilege. Welcome to Statutes of Liberty, an immigration podcast brought to you by Classco Immigration Law Partners. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about EB-5 and specifically source of funds and the do's and don'ts of source of funds issues. Now, you'll hear us talking a lot about Indian investors on this podcast, and that's largely in part because that's where the market is right now. We have a lot of Indian investors who are interested in EB-5. But everything we talk about today is applicable to all investors across the board. And so with that introduction, I'd like to also introduce to you my co-host for this podcast. Uh, She's an associate at our firm, Karuna Simbak. Hi, everyone. So Karuna, you know, one of the things that that, um, kind of frustrate me about investors is that they will try to do a lot of the legwork before coming to an attorney or talking about source of funds or retaining an attorney. So what do you, what kind of advice would you give investors as please don't do this before you have an opportunity to speak with an attorney? I think my first piece of advice would be please don't speak to a friend who's already done this process. (laughs) Um, Because I can't tell you how often I'll get, you know, once we're in the process and we're doing things, I get this so much is that, no, no, my friend already did this and this is what he's done. Um, And I think that is such a, um, I don't think that's a, that will be the proper route to go because um, everyone's got different experiences. Everyone's got different sources of funds. And I'm not, I'm not entirely sure everyone's being completely honest with their friends when they're talking about their sources of funds. So what may have worked for your friend isn't necessarily going to work for you. Your friend might have, you know, a salary, it goes into his bank statement and he's able to, uh, it goes into his bank account and you have those bank statements that show that clearly. Well, that might not be the case for you. So you should definitely not follow the advice of a friend. If you've come to us, um, trust us, rely on what we're saying because we've filed I know you could, You have the statistics better. How many petitions have we filed? I think almost 2,000 petitions in the last like five and a half and years. And so we've had that experience versus your friend who's filed one 526 petition. I don't know what your experience has been. That's exactly, I, I agree with you. You know, I get that investors want someone who's had that personal experience and feel free to talk to them, but also understand what you said, Karuna, right now is that you have different sources of funds not everyone is going to be upfront about exactly what their finances looked like. And second, USCIS policy changes. So if the friend applied a year and a half ago, what worked for them right then may not work for you right now. So it's a, a kind of a, a fine balancing act of you know not providing too much documentation, but also providing enough. But like you said, there has to be some sort of trust that based on just the level of the amount of cases that we file, that we know what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, one of the other things that I noticed that a lot of my investors try to do is they do a lot of legwork up front. So um, we're actually posting a blog about one of these specific issues about investors kind of liquidating assets, selling property, taking out loans before they come to us for uh, to, to help review their documentation. What do you see when investors kind of liquidate their assets or start taking out loans 
before they come to you? You know, the issues that I'm seeing with investors who've liquidated their funds is that they haven't really thought about the intricacies. They haven't really thought about what exactly is going on in their accounts. So to someone um, recently working on a case where they said, hey, we liquidated stock. The stock was, you know, in this uh, bank statement, Mm -hmm. in this bank account. Um, here's a statement. Well, I see, I see stock proceeds going in, but to me, it looks like the mo- the money is actually being used to repay a loan. So, on further digging, you realize that this is an overdraft facility in a bank account, and it is actually secured by a different collateral. Oh, so now it's multiple sources of loans. Correct. So, to USCIS and to us, it really looks like they're actually repaying a loan, but to them, they're using that loan account or that over overdraft facility account. More as in, you know, I can take out money whenever I want. Mm-hmm. I can replenish like the account when credit. I want. Yeah. yeah. So it becomes more complicated. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, yeah. we see a lot more issues is that, you know, people are taking loans against properties. Oh, what about when loans against property, they have language in the loan that says you can't use it for investment, that it's only for purchasing a new property or renovations of an existing property. And we know that USCIS is is asking more about those issues now more than before is that, you know, hey, the, you know, the loan restricts the purpose. You're not using it for its purpose. And so these investors have had to go back and get clarification letters from the banks asking to confirm that they can use this for their EB-5 investment. And then there are some times when the banks won't allow it and the banks will say, no, we gave you a specific purpose for the loan. And if now you're using it for a different purpose, we cannot tell you that that's acceptable. So the investors will then have to find new sources of funds. I mean, I've I've had cases where investors took out loans a year or two before they came to me and now want to use that same source of funds. And worse, they've already transferred their money out of their home country. So for my Indian investors, it's not as bad because they have a $250,000 limit at this point that they can transfer out of the country. But for you know, investors from other countries, if you've kind of taken the money out and now we say you can't document it, it's not good money for EB-5 investment, you may be stuck trying to come up with alternate sources and alternate paths of funds. I, and I've had that situation even when I've reviewed the documents and even when I've told them that this is the money you should be transferring, when I ultimately see the final transfers, I've seen other funds that have somehow commingled. Mm-hmm. So we now have had to go back and trace all of those additional funds. And the investors will swear up and down to me that, no, no, they didn't use additional funds. But the statements, the bank statements just speak for themselves. Right. But there's, I think, and it's not that, you know, the investors are being dishonest about this, I think they just don't realize how USCIS perceives this commingling of funds. In their heads, they're going, oh, I'm using, you know, this is tax paid money. This has been, you know, I I can use this for this, for this purpose. Um, But when you look at the actual documents, um, that doesn't appear to be the final source of funds. It appears that there's been things going on. So, yeah, I'm going to just go back a little bit. Yeah. And just say, you know, one of the, the things that um, can happen frequently is where an investor will say that their source of funds is coming from income. But when we take a look at the documents, we can't actually tie the deposits in their account to income. So what are you seeing when you have investors who come in and they want to use their income as their source of funds? 
what type of documents are investors expecting to provide? And what type of documents do you think USCIS is looking for? Um, with the Indian investors, more often than not, um, especially if they're based in India, they uh, have this misconception that if I have paid my taxes, all my, so- my, my funds are lawful. Correct. From the Indian tax perspective, that is true. But from a USCIS tax, from a USCIS EB-5 investment perspective, it's not just enough to show that, hey, I've paid my taxes, here's my bank statement, um, here's all the money I have in the account. You actually have to show the source of the funds. And more often than not, investors who actually live in India don't tend to have a salary income because they tend to be businessmen and doing their own businesses, which means now we have to go back and tie the deposits in their account to their earnings from their businesses. And so, you know, one of the things that I look for when I'm doing an accumulation of income case from India is before I even start going through the list of documents to provide, I'll and actually work backwards with the investor and I'll say, give me your most current bank statement for the account from which you are transferring money. And now let's go back historically and trace $500,000. And I tend that works better for my Indian investors, just because you're exactly right. If the money is coming from a profit distribution from a company, you have to go back and show how the investor had the money to get that proper, uh, to get that company and um, that the company is successful and show the company financials and then the profit distributions from that company. A lot of my investors have property that they are renting. So we have to go back and show that they how they had the money to get the property, show that they own the property, lease agreements, and then the steady deposits of the uh, rental income coming in. So a vague term, like my money is coming from income, you're going to find that the attorneys are going to come back to you and say, nope, you have to give me more documentation. All of it has to be properly sourced. Now... I hear a lot about, and and you touched on this point earlier, about that's not how my friend did it. That's not how attorneys, other attorneys are saying um, the level of documentation we need. Other attorneys are saying we don't need as much. Or this website says I only need these documents. How do you deal with that type of mentality? Um, With that, I I definitely tell them that um, just because USCIS adjudicated case A that way and, um, you know, they provided certain set of documents does not mean USCIS is going to look at your case the same way. USCIS has consistently said on a stakeholder calls that um, each case is adjudicated on its own. So just because um, X provided, you know, two bank statements to show accumulation of income, which I don't think you, you know, well, Yes, you can if you yeah. know if you're making um, that much money and that you can have it in your two bank statements, um, then that's great. But if you don't make that kind of, if you're not going to get, if your accumulation is not that quick, you're going to have to provide more documentation. So again, your friend said, "Oh yeah, I provided two bank statements. Yes, it worked for them, but it's not necessarily going to work for you because that's not how you're earning your money, or that's not how you may be." maintaining your money. So we're also seeing a lot of investors coming and saying, hey, you know, this attorney told me that I don't need these documents or this website uh, of an attorney told me that I don't need these documents. But, you know, uh, when then when we go and check on, on the websites and the links that they provide us, you know, the attorneys are, are flat out saying this mm-hmm. is the basic level of documentation 
your case will require more um, depending on your specific circumstances. So I get that investors want to provide as little documentation as possible because no one wants the government to dig into their finances. But we want to provide enough that your case actually gets approved. And I think one of the things we've done here um, since the beginning is, you know, we're not just looking at the existing RFE trends. We're also, based on the existing RFE trends, we're thinking of what's next to come. So, and I don't know if necessarily all of the attorneys are thinking that way. So maybe, you know, they haven't prepared our investors' friends for a potential RFE. Um, but I know that we, we try to think up of what else could be coming. Right. And one of the things that, you know, it really depends on what the situation looks like at the moment. So for right now, we have investors that are trying to go into an expedited project to avoid a potential visa backlog for Indian nationals that's set to start in 2019. For those investors, I'm going to be a lot more rigid on the documentation that I need because I want to make sure they don't get an, a request for evidence. If they get an RFE and their case is delayed even further, then there's a, they're more likely to get stuck in the visa backlog. Uh, so, you know, it really depends on what the investor's comfort level is on getting an RFE what our comfort level is getting in RFE. And sometimes with some investors, I know it's going to take them weeks to collect documents. And I say, fine, let's go ahead and file it now. Everything you've shown me has been really clean and uh, lawfully sourced. So I'm comfortable in filing a case where I know I could potentially get an RFE that because that document is going to take a while to collect. And other times where just based on my experience with the client where they said one thing, but the documents showed something else, I may say I'm not comfortable filing because I don't know what that document is going to mm -hmm. look like and I don't want to file a case where you know we don't know what the chances of approval are. And of course if the client wants to take that risk they definitely can, but our advice is always going to be let's try to play it safe. It's $500,000 minimum of 5 years investment. We want to be as safe as possible with your immigration. Yeah, and just because, you know, one strategy worked for someone else doesn't mean that same strategy is going to work for you. And I really do want to be involved with the investor when they're trying to um, decide what would be the best source of their funds. Um, because to them, um, like I recently had a conversation with someone, and they told me that, you know, people have an idea that using your stock investment, um, diluting your stock is the best way to do an EB-5 investment. Well, yes, if, you know, if you can show the clean source of earnings um, for all the stocks, for the stocks that you've purchased. And sometimes you have to purchase yeah. a lot of stock. And so you've got to show how you have the funds to purchase that stock and actually provide stock statements showing all of those stock purchases when you've sold it. Um, and sometimes you are going over years of worth of stocks right. to figure out the source of funds. Um, and so someone told me that they thought that this was a better way versus selling a property which 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 you know which is so much easier to document because all you have to show is okay so this is how i earn my money um and if the property was purchased years ago over seven years ago you know you don't really have to provide the bank statements you are not required to if you have it that's great but we have been able to file cases where we've been able to demonstrate through affidavits and other employment documentation how they had the funds to purchase that property which and then you know selling that property and having the money come into your account cleanly 
just makes for a cleaner case versus having to show this extensive stock portfolio and going back years to sh- document the purchase of the stock. So that actually um, touches upon a really good point, which is when an investor, as an investor, if you're listening to this and you're thinking about you know, going into a console to talk about EB-5 and one of the things you're going to be talking about is your source of funds, what I really like is when an investor comes to a consult with me and says, okay, I've kind of talked or thought about the different sources of funds. These are the three available options I have. This is the type of documentation I will have or have a good idea of the type of documentation that would be available. And then we can discuss what the best source of funds would potentially be. What I don't like is an investor who comes in and says, what source of funds should I use? And it can be difficult for me because I don't know what your finances look like. And it's going to be really tough for me to go through all of your financial assets and then figure out what to do. So if you come with a strategy of saying, these are the possible options I have. I have a property, I have profit distribution, or I have stock or a combination of the three. Then we can talk mm-hmm. about what the level of documentation that's needed and we can discuss um, you know, the, the details of that. The other thing that you know Indian investors uh, will will have is that uh, when they come to me, they'll say, "I'm getting money gifted from a family member or a friend," and then they won't have the gift door either on the line with them or um, won't have any idea of where the gift door's money is coming from. So generally, what I would recommend is that if you are getting money gifted from someone. You either speak to the gift door ahead of time and say, hey, you know, where's your money coming from and what's your comfort level in providing detailed documents so that when you get on a consult with an attorney, you can tell the attorney, hey, this is what their, their money's coming from. Can you give me a general idea of the type of documents that are required? Because what I tend to find, I don't know about you, is that once the gift doors find out that they have to provide their bank statements, their tax returns, their financial records, a lot of them say, no, thank you. And if you haven't had that discussion with your gift door, that could potentially be a problem. Yeah, that that is that that has happened to me very frequently, unless it's, you know, it's a parent gifting the money, then, you know, then they're, of course, more comfortable providing all of this information. But if it's a brother, a sister, close family friends, cousins, yes, uh, they, you know, they tend to shy away from wanting to provide all of this information. this you know private information right. it's confidential but um and and in my i've had an investor who had to you know who went through various family members and um and and as soon as i sent them the checklist of documents they backed away right. from giving any sort of a gift they wanted to help him they had the money they just did not want to provide that level of documentation and and uh, the pushback i got was how is it any of your business right right I, and you're right i you know that is true it is none of my business but uscis is is very um is very strict on what they want to see as a source of funds, even if it's a gift, correct? It's not the investor um, who's, you know, who's earning the money, but that same level of uh, documentation um, also falls to the giftor. Right, and I think logically it makes sense to me because if someone is close enough to gift you money, I, I think what the government is afraid of is that they're giving you money 
but you're actually secretly giving them money under the table. Correct. And so now you're kind of avoiding the source of funds requirements by just pretending that someone's gifting you money, which is why they kind of force you to go through the source of funds for the gift door as well. So I think logically it makes sense to me, but if you are not in the EB-5 mm-hmm. industry, it doesn't make sense to a lot of the investors because they say, it's not my money. Why do you care? Right. And I mean, and someone, if someone's as generous to give them the $250,000, $500,000, you know, it feels like, well, I'm giving you money and now you're telling me to explain where I actually got this money from. So yeah, it it, it becomes very uh, difficult. It becomes really awkward. Um, And uh, I have seen, um, I have seen gift towers back away. Um, So, you know, that's, that, that's just, part of what happens when you're right. an EB-5. And again, it's that, that's why it's really important to have that discussion with your gift or ahead of time. I can't tell you the number of consults I've had where I've advised them to ask the gift or whether or not they're comfortable providing tax returns, bank statements, detailed financial records, and the investor will retain us. And then I find out that they never actually had the discussion with the gift or yeah. and the gift or was not happy. I've had cases where sometimes the gifter will say, I don't mind giving it to USCIS, but I don't want my child or my cousin or my sister to know my financial details. Don't show it to them. And we can't do that. It, our our client is the investor and they have a right to all of their documentation. So, you know, it's going to be very um, difficult for us to restrict not giving access to the investor. So the investor and USCIS has to have access to it. Uh, I'm just recently reminded of a case that I had where we had an 18-year-old investor and the parents were gifting her the money, but they did not want her to see their bank records. So when they provided me, and they were very nice to provide me all of their bank statements and their tax returns, they were fine. Everything was redacted. So the only information that I had was salary deposits. I never saw the bank balance. I never saw any withdrawals or where they were going. So it was just little pockets of numbers (laughs) on their bank statements and that was it. And I had to go back and say, I can't use this. The government's going to come back and say, how do I know this money wasn't spent and you're not depositing new money in? So it can be a little awkward, not only for the investor, but for the attorneys who have to be on these calls with the gift or and the investor as well. No, and... and, um... I've, I recently worked on a case where the giftor actually received a gift. So, you know, oh. it was now two times removed from the investor. But again, so the conundrum was, do I really have to source the giftor's gift? Right. Right. I mean, uh, you know, it becomes complicated. And um, as a, I'm, I tend to be a little bit more conservative. I would be, and again, because of, you know, the different RFE risks and the backlogs, I would rather have all of the funds sourced, even the gift or receiving a gift. Yeah. To me, it makes sense. Um, but then, you know, the, these are challenges that that we see in EB-5 all the time is that the funds come from places. Yeah. So one of the other things that I see, uh, this, again, it relates to all investors, but I see this more with my Indian investors. So the questions at consults are, okay, I have... 15 different sources of funds. Is that okay? How do you answer that question? 
I say I would rather you didn't <laughs> if you have a choice because that is a lot of different sources of funds. Um, I think you just increase your RFE risks. USCIS looking at your case more closely, you end up having to source a lot more than you have to because we know you don't have to source every dollar. But when you use so many different sources of funds, yep. you know even the small amounts just add up because um, it. it no, I I agree with you, and and I you just recently had a case where you had almost a hundred exhibits mm-hmm. just because the investor had so many different sources of funds. Because I apparently scared away his family members from gifting <laughs> him any money because with my checklist and about the financial documents that they would have to provide, right. and so you know he ended up having to use um, I don't know maybe. 10 different sources of funds and each one had several layers uh, within them. So yes, I mean, at the end of the day, we're expecting this adjudicating officer to review this case within a certain amount of time. Um, And we just, you know, when we give them so much to look at, it can be frustrating. I mean, keep in mind, if you have a hundred page source of funds, which is very rare, uh, versus a thousand page sources of funds, USCIS officers are human. They're more likely to miss one page in a thousand uh, page document as opposed to a hundred page document. Um, So one of the questions that I specifically get asked is, you know, should I uh, use these 15 sources of funds because they're all coming from the US? Or can I use one source of funds coming from India? Which do you think is better? And no additional information given. I, I would want to start by exploring the Indian source of fund because it's one source. Um, you know, money being earned in U.S. dollars in the U.S. could be could eventually be more cleaner because, you know, it may be better documented. But I would rather first explore the one source of funds from India than have to do the 15 sources of funds because I'm really thinking about this adjudicating officer. And, you know, how do I want this case to be presented to him? Right. Do I really want him to go through voluminous documents if I can do one source that came from India. Um, That's that's the way I would want to approach it. What about you? I agree with you. So I, you know, especially as the demographic of the Indian investor changes, I'm seeing less and less Indians from India and um, Mm -hmm. the Middle East and Singapore and more in Indian investors who are within the United States. So there's a perception that any money coming from India is going to be more scrutinized than money coming from the U.S. And so whenever I get asked which source of funds should they use, again, no additional information, just depending on where the money is coming from. I'll always say whatever's better documented. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you. I always think about the adjudicator when I'm putting a case together. So I think that's why I like that our firm does a multi-layer review where another attorney is reviewing the case. And if it doesn't logically flow or logically make sense, it's not going to logically flow for the investor, uh, for the adjudicator. So if you have an adjudicator who's looking at a thousand pages of documents and it's tabbed beautifully and it has a, a nice cover letter that takes you through the process from start to finish, I think they're more likely to follow the logic, follow the money, and less likely to get an RFE. But this leads to my last point, that takes time. (laughs) So I'll share some of my perspective with you and Karina, please share some of yours. But as soon as an investor retains our firm, they 
want an immediate date of when they're going to file their EB-5 petition. And they usually have in mind a day after they give me documents that I should be able to go ahead and file because their perception is that all I'm going to do is list out the documents in an exhibit list and then send everything over to USCIS. So it takes me a little while to put the documents together. It takes me a little while to make sure everything is correct, draft this cohesive narrative that is going to like take the adjudicator through this entire process smoothly. So there's that kind of gap in understanding of what we're doing as attorneys in this EB-5 process. Yeah, and, and I think um, not only is there that gap in the, you know how quickly things can be filed, but also there's, you know, going back to they, they don't realize that what they think of their source of funds is not what we see as source of funds. Again, going back to the point where you were talking about, you know, oh, this is from my income. Right. And so you because it's all from my income, I've paid my taxes, here's my tax returns, you should be able to file within the next couple of days. And when we look at the documents, it's like, right, it is from your income, but how did you earn this income? And so as we start digging, you know, they realize that the level of documents that's required and what we need to show USCIS is not what they actually understood to be, even though we've told them from the get-go that, you know, we're going to have to document everything for USCIS. So I I think that kind of concludes our podcast for today. So a quick recap, it's do not liquidate assets before you reach out to an attorney. Don't take out loans. Don't start transferring money. Make sure that your giftors know the level of documentation that's required. And Finally, you also want to have a good understanding of the fact that this process can take some time. It doesn't have to be months long, maybe, you know, a couple of weeks or more of putting together the best case documents uh, or the best case possible so that we minimize your RFE risks. And finally, you know, the level of documentation that's required will vary depending on what USCIS policy is at the time. So what worked for your friend two years ago may not work for you now, and what works for you now may not work for your other friend in a couple of years from now. Even just a few months, I mean, we see things change where USCIS would question something, um, would not question something a few months ago. They're questioning those things now. So, you know, it can be, it can change overnight. um, And that's why you're retaining attorneys. You're retaining attorneys who have been doing this a long time and know what USCIS is expecting to see. It's not just us actually, you know, just including your documents in a case. We're actually explaining what's going on. And that's the other thing that, you know, um, the investors don't realize when we start the process is the level of information we have to provide and the level of, uh, I mean, the explanations that we need to provide to USCIS. So, well, thank you everyone for listening. As always, if you have any topics of interest or questions that you want us to cover in a podcast, please email us at podcast at classicallaw.com. For more information, visit us at classicallaw.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. You can email your immigration questions to podcast at classicallaw.com. podcast does not constitute direct legal advice and is for informational purposes only. An attorney-client relationship is not presumed or intended by receipt or review of this presentation. The information provided should never replace informed counsel when specific immigration-related guidance is needed.